Het komen nooit niet en we verleiden ons van pijn. Getansen werd hier klappen, onkritsen met dit zin. Toch laat de glas aan blazen, onneem de zwijbel rezen. Om geet met meer aten zal het er vaak. Shalom Aleichem, my nechaverim and Chag Pesach. It is the uh, day before Erev Pesach right now when this is being posted, uh, but this is not what you may expect. This is not a Minyan Pesach holiday special, unfortunately. Um, coronavirus and a whole host of effects of it have uh, laid waste our usual plans. So instead, here is what's going to be happening. We are going to be posting several episodes over the course of Lagba Omer, the seven weeks, the counting of the weeks between Pesach and Shavuos. One, of course, will be on Lagba Omer itself, but others will address Passover, the Seder, the Haggadah, the Exodus narrative, and the historicity of it, uh, and other topics besides. So, fear not, you will get your usual uh, Jewish culture holiday analysis from us, just not today. Although as a hint of what's to come, it's a good time to remind everyone that the Exodus narrative and the Haggadah and especially the infamous line at the end next year in Jerusalem has a much, much longer history as a uh, mystical narrative of human emancipation rather than as a Zionist narrative of political nation building through the creation of a settler colonial ethnostate. And coincidentally, resisting Zionist hegemony has a lot to do with what we have for you today, because this is part one of our very first two-parter episode discussing the long history of Palestinian resistance to Zionist colonization. Our comrade Matez spent about four hours talking to us about this. It was an amazing conversation. In this first part, you will hear uh, roughly the first half of that discussion, covering the time period from the 1880s through the 1930s. And then in the forthcoming part two, you will hear the rest of that conversation covering the lead up to the Nakba all the way to the present day. Um, so without any further ado, I hope you enjoy part one of our episode on Palestinian resistance. Welcome to the Minyan. This is a very special episode because it's not just your usual Talmudic tankies on here. Uh, we have a comrade from the West Bank uh, in Palestine on with us today to discuss kind of the broad sweeping overview of the history of Palestinian resistance to Zionist settler colonialism. Um, I am very excited about this episode. Uh, it's been a long time coming. This has been in the works for months, so it's it's great to finally make it happen. Um, so, Matez, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit before we go around and see who else is on here with us, uh, and then we can get into the meat of things? I'm Matez, I'm a little bit of 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 a 
oh, okay. I don't really have anything else to, else to say since I'm very secretive about it. I'm Talia. I am in St. Louis. She, her. I'm Prez. I'm from the New York area. And of, I'm Yaakov. I should have introduced myself first, but I'm a moron. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we have the usual crew here, plus our comrade Matez. Matez, how are you? How are things where you are? Things where I am are a bit weird, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the West Bank is under half quarantine, half not. It's half open because settlers need to enter and leave. <laughs> Of course. You want to talk a little bit about what it's what it's like and what's happening right now with the virus? Yeah, right now with the virus, it's actually, uh, it's not that bad. The West Bank, it's really not that bad. It was originally like around forty-eight cases, and then seventeen of them recovered recently, so it dropped down to thirty-one. Uh, so things in the West Bank are actually going very well without any treatment, like any, because we don't really have the right resources. So what was done basically was quarantine and then give treatment to those you can give to, or like who are most critically in need of it. And then most people just are recovering quite fine. There are new cases found every day, like about two or three every day, uh, or every two days. But generally speaking, it's actually like growing very, very slow, and there are more recoveries, way more recoveries than uh, infections. But of course, it's very politicized, so uh, which is inevitable. So uh, Israel has about 700 cases now, and they are not following the right procedures whatsoever. While the West Bank, which isn't even a goddamn state yet. <laughs> Uh, has done everything it can to lower the casualty, not even casualties, just lower the infections. I wouldn't really want to use the word casualties here. Well, Israel could do way better. And what they did instead was just not following the right procedures whatsoever. They're trying to like have a political game over it to see who's going to save Israel first uh, because of the whole thing with Israeli democracy failing right now. And what they did was put a siege over the West Bank, even though the West Bank has... Like they, they barely any cases compared to uh, Israel, and the West Bank has taking been taking more procedures, even though it's not even a state. And Gaza, uh, on the other hand, like has no test kits, like no, like about only has two hundred test kits, with a population of around like one to two million. Oh. And there is also like a blockade on the area for like the past thirteen years or more now. Don't remember. So it's it's shitty there. It's already been on quarantine. Now, if you have corona, it's going to be a catastrophe because there's no healthcare. Like there's there's no resources, no healthcare, no nothing, no even clean water. But so far, there are no cases there because you know it's blockaded. Nobody enters. Nobody. Oh, that is that's grim. Thank you for the update. Um, it's, I mean, it's obviously important, and that's part of the reason why we wanted to do this episode generally was to get information, you know, coming out of occupied Palestine that our listeners would not be aware of. Uh, we hadn't intended to have it be an update on a global pandemic, but that that's thank you for, for letting us know. Um, and glad that, you know, where you are is doing okay. Um, no surprise that the 
you know, <laughs> Zionist occupation forces are not uh, following the rules because um, that's kind of their whole fucking thing. Um, real quick before we do anything else. Anyone else want to give any uh, Corona updates? I suppose we should have led with that more <laughs> intentionally. Thank you, Talia, for uh, keeping us where we're supposed to be. No problem. <laughs> I'm on day six of quarantine. Where are you at? Massachusetts issued a state of emergency on last Sunday. Um, I think. Right. Yeah. Uh, but my school shut down on Friday the 13th. Um, so I I have been, I suppose, on quarantine through like union uh, laws and city laws from where I teach since then. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine days, day to day nine. Um, but I've also been making good use of that time. Uh, I got married. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh just in case my my wife which i can say now um just in case she gets laid off i can put her on my insurance or if i get sick did you really just do the board I did. I did and i'm not proud of it but i did it i'm not taking it back i'm not editing that out um but yeah, so got got married uh, the last day before City Hall closed. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Prez, how are you doing? I'm on day a million of quarantine because <laughs> I'm a grad student, so I never leave my house anyway. But <laughs> I live in a Russian neighborhood, so I've been watching everyone totally ignore all of the recommendations to not leave your house. And I've been watching um, New York State get increasingly more locked down. So that's been fun. But the trains are still running just as much as usual. Uh, so we'll see how much longer that goes on. Uh, Matez, like, are you on quarantine or how long have you been? I'm on like day three. I think they to be quarantined, but the thing is, before the quarantine, life was so incredibly fucking eventful. And then just quarantine comes and I'm, I'm losing sense of time. Everything feels weird and lifestyle is completely different. Now I'm just watching philosophy videos and, uh, you know, Sufis dancing in mosques uh, from like around 8, 8 a.m. to 12 that sounds like a, that sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's pretty much what I've been doing. Except I, instead of Sufis dancing, I've been watching Space Jam. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty good movie still. Um, oh my god! Oh yeah, no, I mean Space Jam holds up for sure. Um, I've been just on my usual rewatching of X Files. My my wife recently. Wife. Yes, the, I'm sorry. my uh, she recently revealed to me that I treat '90s TV shows the way that uh, Jews treat Torah and Talmud, in that I just watch them on like cycle through a cycle every so often to like glean more meaning from it. These are the holy texts. <laughs> I mean, I literally do this. I cycle through X Files, the various Star Treks, uh, Buffy and Angel, and Twin Peaks. And like occasionally I'll watch another show and then I'll just loop through again. Uh, so I'm on season eight of X-Files uh, <laughs> where it gets uh, bad, where it gets like pretty crappy. Yeah, yeah I know. 
it's it's I'm you know I got to do it though, uh, and just listening to a lot of Dirty South hip hop was bumping a lot of early Ti records yesterday. So yeah, making the best out of this bullshit. Um, anyway, getting to I can't I can't spend too much time on Corona before my mind just spirals. Uh, so let's <laughs> move on. Um, so today's episode, uh, like I said up top, is focusing on kind of the broad overview of uh, Palestinian resistance to Zionist settler colonialism. And Matez, when we were talking about this initially, God, months ago now, I think what we had set up was we would start with, and I'm not going to remember the actual name for it, but the kind of land distribution system that existed prior to colonization um, and then kind of go through the different stages of resistance, you know, in the initial period of like early, you know, pre-state sanction, like pre-Israeli state colonization. And I think you wanted to focus on the 30s um, and then we would move further on into the uh, first and then second intifada. Um, Does that sound right? Yeah, that was the broad historical sketch we agreed on, I think. And yeah. Uh, also, the uh, land distribution system uh, it was called Musha, which uh, actually means commune. Oh, cool. So let's talk about the Musha distribution system. What? How did that work? Uh, you know, what was what was the material condition of the Palestinian people prior to? Zionist infiltration and colonization? Well, prior to that, 75% of Palestine, which at the time was you know, part of South, South Syria, was a province there. It was a region within Syria. So, and in, in that region, the north, it was like the uh, traditional economies were split between the north and the south. The south had the Musha system. North had more feudal systems, but it wasn't that common. And uh, Musha system, the thing is, as I said, 75% of them were peasants, uh, people who worked in ag- agriculture. And how the Musha system worked is that you would have, have clans within each town. So take, for example, one town has four clans. So the lands of the town would be split into four. Uh, and each land would go to one clan and then the clan would be distributed every once in a while according to lottery among its members. So let's say one of the clans has like that one hill in the corner of the go to that hill every say two to five years uh the leader of the clan goes to the hill along with the uh religious preacher and a few other notable members of the clan and they would do lottery among the members and the lottery of course would be based on consideration the amount of cattle they would have the amount they need uh for their children and their family uh, so it's basically according, also according to lottery, like a mixture of both. And it would be distributed among the members. Members would uh, cultivate it for a few years, two to five, and then lottery again, and then they would switch. Okay, that's that's really that's interesting. Um, so this is, I, I hate the term, but this would align with what uh, Engels called primitive communism. So like the kind of... Because uh, you're saying clan base, I, I, I'm assuming that the clan is kind of a extended family structure. 
Um, and that was kind of the the idea of quote unquote primitive communism, which is a grotesque term. Um, <clears throat> but this kind of like extended family clan or tribe based system of like you're saying kind of communal land distribution and that was that was alive and well into uh i guess wait yeah when when did that was that alive and well all up until um zionist uh colonization or was there that that was just the standard up until what the 19 teens 20s type it was actually the standard up until the 1960s or like the late 1950s Oh, wow. So it was mainly because people actually liked the system. People preferred the system over any alternative that the occupying... You had the Ottoman Empire, they tried to get rid of it multiple times, which is why the North had feudal systems. Originally, the entire region was actually like basically highly independent communes or collectives, the Musha towns, basically. And uh, that was basically the system of the entire place. Ottoman North had feudals. Uh, the South rejected the feudals. They even had multiple wars over it. Uh, any person that try, would try to enforce feudalism there would end up dead because the Hell South yeah. which was much more tribal or I guess like land-based than the North because we also have very much, like a very strong distinction between tribe and clan. And... Uh, the uh, British government as well, the uh, mandate, they also tried to get rid of it, which co- which partially caused the uh, revolts in the 1930s. It was the, like one of the major forces, which is them fucking over the farmers, basically, which developed in the farmers before the urban people. And they tried to get rid of it. They succeeded to an extent. They got rid of 20% more of the uh, communal towns. But a big part of the towns were still communal up until the 1950s and the 1950s. Uh, the Jordanian government was in control of the West Bank now. The areas that are now are inside whatever became Israel had completely the system gone. They didn't have it anymore uh, because, you know, seven 700,000 people were evacuated. So it's not like you could have easily said no. Under the Jordanian government, they tried to get rid of it. And people said no, people revolted. Uh, but it ended with the Jordanian government winning, uh, destroying parts of two towns in the south called uh, Yotta and Samoa. And like I think around four or five people died from those towns, and then the towns gave up. So uh, Jordan got to privatize all the communes in the area. But some of the southern towns specifically still have a few communal uh, parts. They revived later, uh, especially in those two towns. Okay. Thank you. That's okay. So, wow, that's so interesting. I'd never known uh, that it extended that late. I had known that there was some kind of land distribution system, you know, prior to, but that's really interesting. It's also, I don't know if you've, th- this is a common obnoxious Zionist catchphrase that I don't know if, if it's said much uh, in, in, you know, by Israelis. I know it's pretty common among like American Zionist that people say that like oh uh, the the British already gave the Palestinians Jordan um, like Jordan is the Palestinian state and this like ridiculous uh, false equivalence between the 
like the partition plan in 47 and the creation of the state of Jordan. Um, but what you're saying pretty clearly <laughs> disproves that because the Jordanian government was enacting violence against Palestinian towns and just like blatantly, I mean, effectively conquering um, and f forcing their systems onto uh, Palestinian people. Oh, it's quite obvious that Jordan never really had anything to do with the Palestinian people, aside from the fact that they just tried to assimilate us into a Jordanian identity. Uh, the entire idea of Jordan under the British mandate, uh, basically, if you look at the uh, historic size, historic land of Palestine, only parts of West Jordan were actually part of Palestine, say parts of uh, like uh, Irbid or uh, Karak, those are like in the very west of Jordan. Those two parts were uh, to, like some at times during history they would be, they would be part of uh, part of Palestine. At other times they wouldn't. Uh, but the rest of Jordan was never part of any region called Palestine up until the mandate. Uh, the hmm. majority of the land belongs to Northern Arabia at the time was part of an entity called New Arabia, and it was just uh, it was just full of Bedouins nomadic people uh, and they followed a tribal system not a clan system plus the king of Jordan the first king was from what became later Saudi Arabia he was not Levantin he was not from Syria or Palestine so uh, the idea of Transjordan to begin with which later became Jordan was just so that the British uh, mandate would be easier to take control of so that the British could easily take control of Palestine and Jordan together since splitting them up since both are very different uh, geographically, it was much easier to uh, control. And then when Jordan took over the West Bank, they wanted to assimilate the identity of the people there into a Jordanian identity, just like how the people in Transjordan began calling them, themselves Jordanian, even though most of them come from very different origins. 70% of the uh, some Palestinian origin, uh, the rest are very random mixes, and then the people with the Palestinian origin are mixed themselves I'm going to be a little annoying about this, <laughs> uh, but when you were talking about how the land was distributed, that was pretty similar to how um, Ireland was and uh, the similarities between what the Brits have done to Ireland and the Brits have done to Palestine are like undeniable and that Ireland was the testing ground uh, to implement this type of imperialism. Uh, I, I'm going to be pretty annoying about this because the similarities are insanely close and it it's it's insane. Like um, the struggles are very interconnected. I know I don't find that annoying whatsoever. In fact, like, big respects to the IRA. Uh, we did an episode with Irish comrades and uh, we did an episode specifically talking about uh, Palestine and Irish uh the interconnectedness of your struggles. Uh, so uh, I, I, I'm probably going to bring it up multiple times during this episode because I, I think the the international solidarity is pretty incredible. Ah, that's, that's, that's fine. But also one thing I forgot to mention about, you know, the conflict, like not, not conflict, but like the contradiction between Palestine and Jordan is that there was even Black September. That was a civil war between the Palestinian population of Jordan and the Jordanian government. And 
300 Palestinian 300 Palestinian civilians in Jordan, living in Jordan, living their life normally, were killed during that civil war. Uh, the commander was from Pakistan. I'm not sure what he was doing there. Uh, he was the commander of the Jordanian army, and the civil war was fought between the Jordanian government and Pada. So, and it was a very, very bloody civil war. It, was, it only ended because of Syrian and Egyptian intervention. Syria was about to go on full out, uh, declare a war. Was Syria going to declare a war on Jordan? Like, were they siding with the Palestinians rising up or the Jordanian government? They were siding with the Palestinian resistance. Mm. The entire civil war started because Jordan did not want uh, the uh, activity of Palestinian political parties within Jordan because it, it feared two things. Uh, it feared uh, Israel invading Jordan because of those political parties and also feared uh, the political parties gaining too much momentum, gaining too much popularity among the population, which is, again, Palestinian in origin mostly, which would then threaten the Jordanian government because Fatah was anti-monarch, anti anti-dynasty at the time. And it was very much against the, against the system of government that, the, uh, that Jordan had. Syria specifically was with the resistance, uh, but the PAN, which is, which, you know, is half of the Assad that later became the leader of Syria, uh, he did not want to roll in the tanks. So if he did fall in the tanks, Jordan would not exist today. It would be a Wow. Okay. Um, so speaking of Syria, a question I had. So you said that um, Palestine was originally kind of part of a larger Syria. Just to kind of situate ourselves um, before we get into the specifics of uh, the Palestinian resistance to uh, Zionism, what modern regions were included in that uh, Syrian administrative zone? You said there was like the north and the south. So like, what, where are we talking about here? So uh, during the country of Syria, its borders do not, do not align whatsoever with the historical piece of land called Syria. Uh, Syria just roughly aligns with the Levant. So it was basically Lebanon, West Jordan, most of Palestine and most of modern day Syria. Uh, a lot of East Syria was not actually a part of Syria. Like what is today in the East part of the Syrian Arab Republic was not part of a part of the land that was Syria. Uh, the next time was not part of Syria. Uh, Lebanon was entirely part of Syria. Jordan, only the West part was part of Syria. And then you had provinces within Syria. You had Palestine, you had Aleppo, you had Sham, which is Damascus. Then you had other provinces as well. Some of those provinces were even states, and then some of the provinces were split into multiple states. Let's say, for example, Palestine, uh, the northern half was part of the administration of Damascus. The southern half was part of, it had its own government called Mutasarrifit of Jerusalem, which means, Mutasarrifit uh, in Arabic just kind of means, Tasarruf uh, means uh, action. So Mutasarrifit is like it acts on its own on its own accord. So mm. it was basically uh, because it governs itself, while the northern half of Palestine was governed by Damascus, etc., etc. Same thing would happen in other regions within Syria. It's just that the Ottoman Empire didn't really know how to administrate. Yeah, that's that's always the... I, I haven't studied Ottoman history in detail, um, but I I am a history teacher and I'm a history nerd. And, and the, the kind of impression I've gotten from what cursory 
info I have is that the Ottoman Empire was uh, hands off to the point of neglect on the on a lot of local administration um, and just kind of, yeah, like you said, just did not know really what to do with the areas under its control. Um, So just real quick, one last clarifying uh, point, just uh, because I had drawn an equivalence between this and apparently that's that's not the case so what what is the difference between the you said there's a distinction to be made between the the tribal system and the clan system is that right yeah but that's mostly a cultural difference uh, between the bedouins and the more settled people Mm. and the more settled people you have the urban people the rural people in arabic are called the urban people in medanijin and the uh, rural people people, and then Bedouin is just so the Bedouins had tribes and then the tribes would have lands within them and then in the settled people the cities would have something similar to the clan structure and it's it's quite identical in fact aside from the fact that they didn't they didn't control lands they didn't really control any kind of like means of production or anything they were just uh, there for social support for each other that's in the cities and they didn't call them clans they called them houses. Uh, while in the uh, rural areas, they used the term clans, and it was more economic than in the cities. But the idea was the same because the culture between the cities and the rural areas is it's just the only difference is, is that some of them are, and some of them are, uh, like uh, urban people. And these two cultures are, are called Levantin, while the Bedouin culture is not really that Levantin. It it has. It's, it's had contact with Levantine culture for a while, uh, for a very long time. But they're still very distinct because of their nomadic uh, tradition. Okay. Um, so just to make sure I have it right. Uh, so basically the, the tribal system is the Bedouin nomadic larger structure within which the clans exist. Whereas in the settled areas of uh, the Levantine cultures, um, whether urban or rural, you kind of have like whatever the municipal or administrative zone has kind of taken the place of the tribe as the larger unit within which clans operate. Is that right? Uh, it's like that tribes don't really exist in the Levantin culture. Okay. It's, you only have the clans okay. and then people are unified within the town itself. Is that, you know, tribes in uh, Bedouin culture, it's because Bedouins keep moving anyways. So the tribe is kind of important to them. Uh, but it had no importance to people who are settled. So what was important to them is just clans because clans uh, affected social life and economic life. So what substituted tribes was just the town. You all belong to the same town. Okay, thank you. So just this is just a string that I am kind of picking up on. Um, It seems like between the Ottomans and Jordan and the British, um, it wasn't just about forcing, well, it was just about forcing people off their land, but um, was there a major push to deculturize, I guess is a really bad word, but it's the word that's in my head, um, people they were trying to decommune, decommune, um, when they were forcing them off their land or were they just like, you have to move to the city um, and be done with it? Or were they trying to say like, 
you have to kind of privatize the land and learn all of these new ways of life. And that kind of really strained social relations and relations between production and kind of caused the wars that you were referencing. Are you talking about Ooh. like cultural assimilation? Yeah. Okay. That's the word. Okay. Forced assimilation. Okay. Where you like have to learn the colonizer's language. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. Like they they weren't just clothes. being forced off the land. They were being forced to assimilate with the yeah. Ottomans or the British or the Jordanians in addition that to is. being forced off. Uh, well, uh, it differed from one empire to another and one country to another. So. In the Ottoman Empire, the there were Turkification policies that came very late into the Ottoman Empire, and those had no relation to the privatization of the land. What they wanted the people to do is not adopt different culture, but adopt a different lifestyle that isn't necessarily the colonist's lifestyle himself, but specifically just like a new economic system that will affect the way you work, basically. So it's more... It's, it's closer to the latter suggestion. The Ottoman Empire never really wanted to drive anyone out of their towns. They wanted people to live under a feudal system. Uh, so they wanted to privatize the lands, but not drive the peasants off. And now if someone bought the lands off of the feudals and they kicked the peasants off, the, the Ottoman Empire didn't really care. Uh, it, it wasn't illegal. Up until the peasants, of course, fought back because that did happen in the late 1800s. And that's when they stopped people from selling the lands, but they uh, still privatized them as much as they could. Uh, as for the British, the British both privatized and kicked people off of the land, depending on demand. If they were demanded by Zionists to kick people off the lands, then they would in some cases. Uh, but in most cases, it's 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 basically privatize and then sell the land to Zionists and then the Zionists kick the peasants out instead of having to do it yourself. And then in the case of Jordan, they didn't really care. They, they, they were, nobody was kicked out of the land. There were there were no uh, uh, there there was no expulsion whatsoever. It's just that Jordan wanted to introduce capitalism, which uh, the British the British wanted to introduce private property to its most basic level. So basically, when it comes to land. And I wanted to introduce industrialization. Uh, Ottomans introduce uh, feudalism, and then Jordanians they just wanted to introduce full-fledged capitalism, basically. And then the communes threatened that because of how traditional they were and how opposed to just commodities in general. Because for them, money was an accessory; they put it on their clothes. But when it came to using it in everyday life, people didn't use money that much. They preferred using shit like eggs, and then like straight up just barter. Great. And um, just a note that every time we had a transition historically and in the Palestinian case between um, one mode of production, whether it be feudalism to capitalism or communalism to feudalism, we have shit go haywire where people end up getting pushed off their land, even though they don't really expect it or care. Um and people just generally get angry because their way of life is changing. And even though they're not being forced to assimilate, they end up having to assimilate to the, the new mode of production anyway, so they don't like it. Um, so 
I think that's a pretty important thread to pick up from a lot of history that we can read through most of the world, especially the Palestinian case, because that's taking place in the 1800s and 1900s, whereas a lot of other cases we have to dig back farther. Also, a quick point that uh, one of the major organizations that was on the Zionist end of things that was doing that kind of land grab. And like you were saying, Matez, like, oh, the, the British mandate government was happy to allow the Zionists to kick people, you know, kick the Palestinian peasants off the land was the Jewish National Fund um, that is now most commonly associated in the U.S. anyway with like plant a tree and like shitty eco-philanthropic work. Um, but we, we we talked about this on our uh, Tubishvat episode. Um, but always remember that if for our, for our listeners, if you ever see those Jewish National Fund plant a tree fundraiser boxes, uh, those things are fucking soaked in blood. So fuck the Jewish National Fund forever. I was actually talking last night about how all these plant a tree things are um, eco-fascist because they're talking about how Israel is the only country in the Middle East who can quote unquote, make the desert bloom, whereas everyone else is ruining the Middle East with overpopulation and destruction of the environment. I really hate that point so goddamn much because it was not a fucking desert. <laughs> the peasants were in there for no reason. They wouldn't be trying to cultivate a desert for, to, to no avail. It's just a bunch of green hills. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the cultural distinction you draw between Levantine culture and Bedouin culture, like th that is based on biome. <laughs> pretty pretty explicitly like you wouldn't bother to have the nomadic bedouin lifestyle in the in the like rolling hills of the levant and you would not have agricultural levantine culture in the fucking desert <laughs> it's, it's so basic and people just buy this bullshit Ugh. but like any, anyone who says that we need to go plant trees and we're the only ones who can do it is a fucking eco-fascist who wants to kill Palestinians and thinks that everyone, like poor brown people, are overrunning the earth and destroying its resources. I mean, they claim to be the only ones that could uh, plant the trees in the desert, but I planted a tree in my grandmother's backyard once, an olive tree, when I was six. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's very much verifiable. Yeah, olive <laughs> yep. trees are so important to like Palestinians like we talked about this a lot on our Tubashevit episode about how olive trees are important and that Israelis just come and destroy them and then oh yeah we're gonna make the desert bloom with all these trees we'll stop fucking cutting down the olive trees you assholes the olive trees are because it's the most uh, it's the most numerous, or I guess the easiest kind of tree you could find here. It's very, pretty much everywhere. But the thing about lifetime, and you have to take care of them, like you take care of a child. So basically, people end up just growing feelings for trees because of how much they put effort into this tree and raise this. And set the base down and bring down the trees that people spent an entire lifetime raising like as, as if it's a child of their own uh, and i think last year they destroyed like over 300 trees in a very short amount of time oh I the statistic and most of it was in the south as well 
which is where most of the violent, violent settlers are. It's just another form of genocide, basically. I mean, it's cultural genocide. It's, yeah. it's a way to wipe out um, a group of people's cultural heritage to make the actual genocide that much more palatable to themselves and erase that group of people's existence. And you see that happen in Palestine and the rest of the world. Yeah. That is what we call ethnic cleansing. Yeah. It's straight up ethnic cleansing. But it's just like so cruel. Like the cruelty is the point that you 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 put so much effort into raising this tree. That's the thing that kills me. It's like you put effort into raising this tree and like you said it's like a child and then they just come and just destroy it and it's just like a just assault on the wound like the the gaping wound that they have created i mean it's it's very much just fucking disgusting at this point but this is is the least worst they could do uh considering you know i i mean i see these people every single fucking day so uh Destroying a child is the least they could do. And that child being a tree. Ugh. What a fucking nightmare. Uh, well, on, on that grim note, let's move into resistance. Um, because <laughs> fuck all of this shit. Fuck these goddamn settler trash. Um, so let's, let's talk about the resistance to these fuckers from the beginning right up till right now. Um, so the first one is, uh, Matez, you just have it labeled as the late 1800s conflict. I know nothing about this one, so I'm really excited to, to learn about it. So what was going on in the late 1800s, um, that led to this conflict and what was, what was going on? So in, in the late 1800s, uh, at the time it was still under the control of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman Empire was allowing... Uh, land sales to happen between uh, local feudals, uh, feudals from the state of Damascus, feudals from uh, the state of, and basically the areas in the northern Levant, where a lot of the feudals uh, who controlled the northern Palestinian lands lived. So basically areas which are now Lebanon and Syria. They were allowing, the Ottoman Empire was allowing uh, sales between those feudals and uh, Europeans. Or uh, during the late 1800s, that is when the first wave of Zionist settlements began. And how they began was basically the Zionists bought uh, land from feudal landlords. And those guys basically just did not give a shit about the peasants to cultivate the land for them. Uh, so they sold the lands to them and the settlers that came, they kicked out the people. They kicked out Bedouins, they kicked out Filahin, uh, which are the uh, farmers, and they kicked out the Medanin, urban people, uh, who had ties to Filahin, but that was very rare. It was always, almost always the Filahin, and sometimes the Bedouins. Uh, urban people had their own issues to look out for. So, uh, so yeah, saying uh, urban people were kicked was a mistake on my part. But yeah, uh, they kicked them out, and then it happened a few times, and then on one of the times, people just had fucking enough. And they started sending complaints to the Ottoman Empire and they started fighting back as well. And there was a minor civil war between the uh, settlers and the Fallahin and Bedouin. Bedouin. So uh, 
how that ended was the Ottoman Empire stopped allowing sales between the feudal landlords and it went silent from then on. But there were a few conflicts between the settlers and the other neighboring towns since then because of things such as grape theft or other shit like that. And like dramatic minor issues. It's just like some, some drama between, between them both, but it wasn't really anyone kicking anyone else out because that was the conflict beforehand. So you had like it, it was there was the original thing, them kicking out people, people not liking it, complaining to the Ottoman Empire and then fighting back. And then you also had after that was all over, uh, you had just like some minor uh, fights between individuals from uh, neighboring towns and individuals from these settlements just fighting over items and shit. Oh, OK, so kind of the, the classic, like using a crisis to settle personal scores. Somewhat, yeah. Okay, so this is taking place, when we're saying late 1800s, this is what, eight, 1880s, 90s? This is the, uh, what in in like the kind of history of Zionism is referred to as the uh, the new Yishuv. So there's a distinction between the old Yishuv and the new Yishuv. Uh, yishuv uh, just means, it, it literally means settlement. The old Yishuv were the uh, the Palestinian Jewish populations, right? The, the Jews who had lived in Palestine as Palestinians um, in, you know, for however long, um, you know. Uh, and, those guys, half of the population comes from them. Anyways, it's just people, uh, many of the people have their origins in Palestinian Jews who just converted to other religions. Right. And so, so yeah, so the old Yeshuv is just the the ones who had, not converted to Islam or Christianity or uh, Baha'i or other religions. Um, so like I know Hebron had um, had a large uh, Palestinian Jewish population going back to time immemorial. The the group that I had mentioned earlier was the new Yishuv, um, which I mean, even that language draws this false equivalence between the Jewish populations of Palestine and the Jewish populations of settlers, because the new Yishuv were the folks that were uh, drawn in in the first wave of what they call making Aliyah, um, going, you know, going, going up is what it means. And it's, you know, wrapped up in this messianic bullshit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the the new issue for the ones who are the the people that kind of the people that are held up as like the the Jewish victims par excellence, like the the Russian Empire uh, folks, like fleeing pogroms and whatnot. Um, and again, I want to harp on the role of the the JNF because I believe they were active at this point. Um, in like being the folks buying that land from, like you were saying, the feudal landlords. Um, and just like, this is something that I know it took me a lot of time to work through as somebody who was raised in a very, you know, Zionist background and being, you know, a, a descendant of Russian Jews run out of well, Ukrainian Jews run out of the Russian Empire uh, due to pogroms like that. That narrative is very it has a lot of emotional buy in for folks from that background of like, oh, well, they were fleeing pogroms. What were they supposed to do? Um, and just like call attention to the fact that, you know, these like there, there's there's a different there's a class struggle at work here. Right. Like there is an organization, the JNF, that is basically just like a corporation of landlords um, 
that is weaponizing the the pain and the fear of folks fleeing legitimate oppression in the Russian Empire and using that to fulfill their colonial ambitions in Palestine. Um, and like thinking through that is something that Jewish folks who I mean, I hope we have listeners who are trying to unlearn. Um, but that's something that I just wanted to to like spell out because it's not it it becomes like it becomes more clear where the real power dynamics lie in this colonial conquest when you realize that like it's not like this you know poor shtetl person from Russia was going and like buying up land themselves they were broke it was that they were being sucked they were being like seduced into this colonial mission by largely really wealthy British French and American uh, Jewish you know, quote unquote, philanthropists who were running these operations, buying up the land, kicking off the Palestinian peasants at the same time, not allowing Jewish uh, victims of of pogroms to like enter their country, except in like tiny itty bitty quotas and bullshit. So just to set this in like official time period, we're talking about the the late reform period in the 1880s to like 1890s period. Um, and how haphazard that was with was, the Egyptian yeah, crisis and like, all of that. It was from like late 1880s to early 1900s, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, so like the uh, conflicts between the settlements and the locals was way up to the First World War. It was from late 1800s to okay. yeah, that time. Yeah, yeah. So it was like about 30 years. Okay. Um, I just wanted to put that into context for uh, some of the reader, uh, not readers, listeners, that um, during that time period, uh, the British went into Egypt and unofficially annexed Egypt and Sudan. Um, and we had an Ottoman census that took place that kind of laid the groundwork to understand how many people were in, in the entire Ottoman Empire. Um, and it was just kind of showing that the Ottoman Empire was about to collapse. Um, and there was just a lot of a lot of issues going on, as, including the Palestine con uh, conflict that we're talking. So I guess what was the like how how what was the resolution of that conflict where where did things stand after it all uh you know i mean was it was it violently squashed did it just kind of lose momentum over time what was the end point of that uh well it just ended with the ottoman empire stopping land sales but people who already bought the lands they didn't uh <laughs> they didn't really well what's the right word in english revoke it mm-hmm uh, the people already bought the lands, they kept it in their hands, but they stopped any new land sales. So it was legal up to a point where people just started complaining, sending the Ottoman Empire uh, complaints and letters. That was a thing during that time, where uh, where if you can get a big number of the people from a town or multiple towns and you get them to sign a petition, you could send it to the Ottoman Empire. And hopefully, hopefully they would listen to your complaints. And enough people did that because, you know, a lot of people were struggling with them, with the uh, settlements. So uh, enough people signed the petitions and there was also violent uh, conflict between the locals and the settlers. So because of the violent uh, issues between them, the Ottoman Empire had to listen to the petition. So they stopped the land sales and it calmed down after. 
uh, and ever since then until other shit went down all all the conflicts were just uh some personal uh quarrels basically people just saying um you took this from me i'm gonna beat you up now and then one person would be a local farmer and the other person would be a settler but not very related to the original issue i see okay um so before we move on from that because that kind of dovetails into what the i'm sure the preconditions for the 1930s revolt were because you you said that went up right until world war one um which was something of a fucking game changer for i mean obviously the world but like particularly for the um like palestinian uh resistance and you know this zionist settler colonialism world war one really opened the floodgates for a lot of things um i know that at that point like you said, Prez, you were talking about the the census um, that revealed that the Ottoman Empire was kind of teetering. And so at that point, the Zionist organizations kind of pivoted from trying to work within Ottoman channels to really just like getting in bed with the British and French. So I guess uh, anything else to say before we move on to what happens after World War One and leading up to the 30s revolt? So you're mentioning that um, Zionists went in, dis- switched uh, tracks from being in bed with the Ottomans to being in bed with the British and the French. Um, brings me to a quick question for Matez. Um, that is actually kind of surprising that the Ottomans were able to kind of bureaucratically deal with this conflict in Palestine when at in this reform period they had a lot of trouble dealing with kind of uprisings and conflicts in Egypt and Sudan and in the rest of the uh, empire and needed outside support from the British and the French actually um, to deal with them. Um, so is is there anything that was going on in terms of politics in Palestine that made things a little easier to deal with bureaucratically or allowed things to be dealt with bureaucratically instead of having to bring in the military um, um, as opposed to to just being able to send over a petition? Very much so. It's it's that the general population passing was not anti-Ottoman whatsoever. Uh, You had a lot of anti-Ottomans among the peasants, but the powerful people in the Levant during that time were urban elite. Mm-hmm. Uh, families like Neshashibi, uh, Hosseini. A lot of really very notable families. Tokon. So these families were in bed with Ottomans. They liked the Ottoman Empire, but they did not like the uh, Young Turks. Uh, and there were even parts of the Young Turks that were made up from these people specifically. The Young Turks were split into two factions one that was Turkish nationalist and one that just wanted to reform the Ottoman Empire, uh, if I'm not wrong there. Uh, so uh, people generally were not against the Ottoman Empire during World War One, when you had Bedouins revolting against the Ottomans. The Levantine people, the settled people, did not really care about that. The settled people, in fact, were fighting with the Ottomans against other forces. So people actually did not want the Ottoman Empire to collapse. They just wanted more rights within the Ottoman Empire. So people did not want to revolt against them. Uh, before that, however, before the rise of these like 
elite's voices. Uh, peasants had much more strength. Peasants had much more political leaders. Uh, so uh, those people were squished in uh, previous revolts in the 1700s and the early 1800s. So you had uh, Qasim that was in the uh, early 1800s, the 18... Uh, well, no, that wasn't even against the Ottomans. That was against the Mamluks. Sorry about that. But there was one against the Ottomans in the uh, mid-1700s and early 1700s by a peasant turned uh, monarch called uh, Zahar al-Omar al-Zidani. And he was just a tax collector of peasant origin in uh, a, town, a town in the north. And his revolt was the greatest against the Ottomans. It was not that national, but he wanted to have a united Syrian kingdom independent from Ottoman rule. Uh, that was the last any that was the last anti-Ottoman attempt at gaining independence by anyone from the Levant. Ever since then, people were just very much uh, in favor of the Ottoman Empire. They just wanted more autonomy and more rights, and they were actually getting that, which is why people stopped revolting against them. Which is what, as, as I mentioned before, Mutasarrafit of uh, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem government, it was supposed to be like half autonomy for Palestine because people were asking for Palestinian autonomy for a while. And the north in Palestine did not want autonomy because that would have affected their trade. While in the south, the south was not very, like aside from towns like Hebron, it was not much trade oriented and the trade routes in Hebron were not connected to the north. So they wanted uh, complete Palestinian uh, autonomy within the Ottoman Empire, and they were getting there. So people were say people had hopes. Basically, they didn't want to revolt against them. Awesome. So let's learn how World War One killed their <laughs> hope for reform. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a reform movements. Express. You know, <laughs> it's almost like reform uh, attempts. You know, siphon off revolutionary potential, huh? I wonder if there's any how that happens. I know. I wonder if there's any important, you know, theoretical works by mm. Jewish communists that uh, we could I read to explore I that don't issue know further. About that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what? What was the? Yeah, Prez. <laughs> good. Good segue. Um, yeah. What was the aftermath of World War One on the ground? Because I, my knowledge of it is only like, you know, I've only looked into the history of the like within the zionist movement um how that shifted things but what was the the aftermath of world war one on the ground in palestine on the ground in palestine is just one day people were under ottoman control uh they were hearing news of the war and people were being taken as conscripts they're being drafted uh taken to war forcefully because that, that was a thing in ottoman empire uh, so one day people are disappearing, all of them going to war for the Ottomans, and then the second day, uh, things are silent, and then third day, people don't people didn't come back until later. So uh, third day is, uh, and it wasn't days, of course, it was just like, it was years, but I'm just summarizing it. And then the third day they just wake up to see a bunch of British people walking in the streets, announcing that Palestine is now part of their empire, and. The people were not very happy about that. So the British said, okay, we take democracy into this. We're going to make a referendum. Do you guys want us? Do you not want us? And then it was overwhelmingly 
no, get the fuck out. <laughs> so they just rigged the results. So they could, they could uh, in front of the League of Nations, they could pretend like they have legitimacy over uh, controlling the area. Now, it became public very fast that it was simply a fucking lie. It was a rig. It was a rigged elections. Not even elections, a rigged referendum, sorry. So, uh, but people didn't care because, hey, who the fuck cares about a bunch of peasants in the Middle East, do they? Uh, of, of fucking course. <laughs> God damn it. The European tradition of rigging elections in the Middle East. Um, but so there, I remember even in history class in like fucking when I was 10, I would always hear this narrative that the poor brown people didn't really care who was their leader. You could just wake up one morning and then be told your, your king got replaced and then you would just go on about your day. I mean, it did happen. <laughs> it did happen. People, people did wake up with just leaders changing a bunch of fucking times. Like in during these 1700s, as I mentioned, like one time people wake up, they're, they're just living under the Ottoman Empire. The next day they wake up, they find themselves living under a new Palestinian ruler who's a peasant himself. Mm-hmm. So it's, it did happen. It's just that people did have an attitude towards it. People cared. It's not like they didn't. Uh, a lot of people did not care and those guys did not intervene. But the ones who did fucking care, just like in any other country in the world, you can find the same shit happening in a lot of countries before internet was a thing. In a lot of European countries, people would wake up, find a new king. Uh, it's not like people there acted any different from people in the Middle East. Uh, it's just that information was just very vague for people to care about. They just wanted to do their job and get along with it. And same shit, same case, no difference between the people and their attitudes. And the people who did care, they joined the army. People who did not care, they just did not join the army. Uh, but people did generally care. And considering that the Middle East is, like, specifically Palestine is a, such a small place that information spreads very fast, uh, most people did care. Mm-hmm. So what was was the response to this kind of, out, not outside entity, but British takeover of Palestine did that radicalize a lot of people who were reformist or did that just kind of kind of turn off people from reformism and just say i'm not going to do anything anymore or was it a mix of both it was somewhat a mix of both the farmers they kept getting constantly fought more and more and more and more over and then the farmers just came to the realization well fuck this why do we even put up with this well, the urban elite, they just ask, they just, they just kept asking for more and more reforms. There was things such as the Syrian Palestinian Congress, uh, the Arab National, no, the Syrian National Congress and the Arab Higher Committee, uh, the Palestinian National Congress. Uh, there were a lot of these urban movements. Uh, the, the, so basically, farmers were anti-reform. Urban people were pro-reform. They tried reforming to an extent until the 1930s where people just had enough, the farmers had enough, because the city, the cities, they were isolated off of the, uh, they were very much like in their own issues. They had their own issues. They were isolated from the issues of the farmers. 
up until privatization and then where, where farmers had to move into the cities to look for better jobs because privatized lands don't really work under capitalism. Uh, and then up until then, until up until population changes and up until economic changes, the urbans did not realize how deeply fucked the situation was, not as much as the farmers did. So the farmers were the first people to start resisting and to develop the idea of nationalism. Well, people kept reforming more and more and more, and they had their own ideas of nationalism, but they were very different from the ones of the farmers. So was this idea of nationalism um, solely the idea of we have to get rid of the British as Palestinian farmers, or did they start kind of uniting with, um, say, like Palestinian bourgeoisie to kick out the British and saying that, like, you are also getting kind of fucked over too. And we should unite because we have more of an interest as Palestinians to get rid of the British than you have uniting with the British and fucking us over. Uh, it started off in very different ways, all the different kinds of nationalism that you can find in the Middle East. So you had the original pan-Arabism that was very different from the later forms of pan-Arabism and that existed under the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so that kind of pan-Arabism, you had the kind of pan-Arabism among the older population and you had the pan-Arabism of the younger population. The older population were very much just, can we just have our local lives and get along with our own people, please? And they were not much, they weren't very much for uh, any like pan-Arab, uh, how do I explain this? The older people were just like, they just wanted to live under the Ottoman Empire with more rights Younger people, which were military officials, uh, they were more about uniting the, not the Arab world. At the time, they used to, uh, they wanted to unite only Syria under the label Arab. and did not care about other places of the Arab world. So the original pan-Arabism was actually Syrian nationalism just under the term Arab. Uh, and it really did not, did not care about the like actual Arab unity. It just wanted Syrian unity. So and, it was a type of like pre-Syrian Baathism kind of thing? It, it was way different than Baathism. It was okay. completely different. It was just Syrian nationalism, and that's it. It's just okay. that people okay. wanted unity between Lebanon, Syria, and then sometimes Iraq and Palestine, even though Palestine was always part of Syria, but people were iffy about it because they were more... They, were, they, they, they had the southern culture more. There mm -hmm. was some cultural difference. Uh, so... So, and, and then in Palestine, the bourgeois were basically Syrian nationalists and Arab nationalists. And then that was during the Ottoman Empire. Then the British came, so it became Syrian nationalism and then a bourgeois version of Palestinian nationalism that was tied to Syrian nationalism. And then the peasants did not care about any of these. They just wanted to like, get the fuck out of Palestinian farmers. We don't fucking want you here. It was just that. And then it was that until the urban areas also started getting affected by the issues of the farmers. So that's when they both united. Mm -hmm. so it, like, both of them developed differently. So the bourgeois nationalism developed from pan-Arabism, while the farmer nationalism, the Palestinian, the original Palestinian nationalism developed from just the conditions of the farmers. And then so they both is, unified. Is there a difference between how the... Um, the national is there a difference between the nationalisms that um, originated from pan-Arabism and originated from kind of the proletarian working conditions? So even though they eventually came together, 
um, if you took someone who was originally a pan-Arabist and became a nationalist and someone who was just a working class nationalist and then is now united with the uh, kind of more bourgeois nationalist, do they have differing ideals on some things or do they end up uniting on a lot of things? They end up uniting on most issues. Now, they all of them had different long-term goals. Mm-hmm. Uh just like the Syrian National Congress had very different long-term goals than uh, other congresses, for example. And then the, uh, the uh, what was it called again? Uh, the Holy, what was it called? Jihad Muqaddas. Uh, the Holy uh, Jihad of Palestine, that was one of the first organizations to exist. And it was led by both Muslims and Christians, even though that uh, that one didn't really have any long-term goals to begin with. They just wanted to kick the British out. And after that, they just wanted to leave things to whoever is, was willing to take care of it. They didn't really have any goals themselves. Uh, long-term goals, it was different. But then when it came to revolting, nobody looked like past each other. In mm-hmm. fact, the revolt was called the Farmers' Revolt because of how dominant farmers were. Mm-hmm. So the bourgeois, the bourgeois of Palestine, the, the urban elite, basically, the feudals, they weren't even bourgeois at the time yet. It was just feudal people. The feudal landlords so, at the time, the feudal elite, they just they just uh, put their own interests aside for a bit for the revolt. Okay. So how did these dynamics um, end up kind of fomenting the revolt itself and then leading to the uh, results of the revolt and then aftermath of it in terms of what happened in terms of the policy and successes and failures so the revolt began because of like acceleration of land sales uh so settlers were buying more and more and more land and farmers were being either kicked off or leaving on their own accord because they can't find a living and the privatization caused massive unrest and then in 1936 and i don't remember what was the exact cause of it it was one specific spark uh, and they started a strike, a general strike, and then after the general strike, which was the strongest general strike to be seen yet in uh, the entire region. Uh, after the strike, the revolt started. The Holy Jihad of Palestine began arming up. The peasants began arming up. Uh, the uh, Holy Jihad was led by an urban, uh, by an urban uh, guy known as Abdul Qadr al-Husseini. Uh, but many of the other local leaderships, because the way the revolt was built was based on uh, highly dependent but uh, cooperating communities in each town. So let's say you had 500 towns, each town would have a committee of its own. So you had 500 committees and then each committee would have subcommittees. So basically, each town had a government of its own that would take care of the revolution for them. That would take care of the revolt. And... The uh, Holy Jihad basically was on top of all of that together. But a lot of the local leaderships were just peasants. And one of the strongest, most major leaderships in the south was led by a peasant from, uh, I think it was Dura, a a town called Dura in the south, which is right next to Hebron. So in focusing on the, like turning to the, the 30s revolt, then like how much of the 1930s revolt 
was related to British mandate policy versus uh, Zionist settler agitation. Like, were were there distinctions drawn? Were those seen as two parts of the same whole? Well, the Zionist settlers were more seen as the dogs of the British mm. uh, up until the later periods where the British, uh, well, like up until after the revolt, where the British began like releasing their hand more and more off of the area. Uh, so they were like so during the revolt, people didn't put much distinctions between them. But most of the attacks were on the British more than the settlers because what people would do in order to attack was raid. Uh, and to do the raids, you would want to attack, you know, mostly an army. So for them, the best target was British officers, basically, because they were very much like it was very easy to tell them apart. And also because they were the ones going around privatizing and they were the ones going around trying to make sure that each town is under control. And they were the ones that were like responding to the strike. They were the ones that were that had uh, that had that had given orders, basically. And a very famous song. Now it's not famous, uh, famous anymore, but up until the second intifada, it was quite popular. Uh, it's called the Birha Ya Mr. Dil, which means solve it, Mr. Dil. And Dil was a British commander who was uh, supposed to take care of the revolt. And then he was defeated within two weeks because the revolt was just taking over the entire place. So the song basically was made telling Dil to just take care of this and listen to our demands, otherwise you will lose. Hell yeah. Oh, wow. Um, can you can you type out the, the name of that song? We're going to have that as the Kays. outro music. <laughs> yeah. Going to fucking rock that shit. Um, yeah. Yeah, we definitely want that in our in our show notes. I just want you to know, I'm like listening intently. I don't have many questions because I don't, I honestly don't know anything about this time period. So I don't want you to think like I'm ignoring you. I, I am listening. It's like this stuff is very fascinating to me. Yeah, I'm. I'm also learning a lot. Um, this is fantastic, Matez. Thank you so much. Um, so. When I and I've talked about this on the show before, but like I became a Marxist through studying the history of Zionism and getting completely disgusted with it and finding that the anti-Zionist folks that knew the most and could teach me the most were also Marxists. And then as I got further into it, Marxist Leninists. But when I was studying that, the way I always heard from the like history of Zionism perspective on things was that the 30s revolt was very much tied to the 1929 Palestine riots, um, which now seems like it's really not the case because the 29, uh, I mean, riots is obviously a very judgmental term, so um, probably uprisings would be better. Um, but that was over uh, Jewish settler control of the, uh, the Al-Aqsa mosque compound, right? Because it was about Jewish settlers trying to claim control of the, the Temple Mount. Um, but what you're, if I have it right, what you're saying is the 30s was a lot more, surprise, surprise, about like political and economic relations rather than like religious uh, tension. What happened in 1929 also was not necessarily religious tension. 
people that it was split into two parts, I would say. Uh, you had the people revolting over the fact that settlers are taking over parts of, you know, uh, everyday life. And then you had people who just were being fed uh, lies by this guy called Amin al-Husseini, who was very irrelevant uh, after 1929. Uh, so what Amin al-Husseini did was say that there's no difference between Palestinian Jews and the settlers. And then like around five to 10 people bought his shit. Most people did not. And those 10 people went around in Hebron killing random Palestinian Jews. Uh, most people actually defended those Palestinian Jews. Most people in the south, near Hebron and in towns around Hebron. In Hebron, some people defended them. Outside of Hebron, not a single person attacked them. And people were willing to defend them against outsiders coming to attack. So in fact, solidarity between the uh, Jewish peasants and the other Muslim and Christian peasants was very high. And then in the urban area, which is Hebron in the south, uh, people defended them, but most of the people who were fighting against the Jews were in Hebron itself. No, all of them were, in fact. None of them were outside of Hebron. Uh, so it was kind of tough to hold back. Uh, that led to a massacre, unfortunately, while uh, a lot of Jews were saved because their neighbors saved them. Uh, they defended them. Now, in Jerusalem itself, it was not against Palestinian Jews. It was just against the claims by settlers of them wanting to take over the, uh, not even Aqsa, Aqsa Mosque itself. Uh, it was specifically the Western Wall. Hmm. Uh, but the settlers did not try to do that uh, at the time, as far as I know. There was no direct attempt. So it was just basically claims over the news that this, this and that might happen and was might happen. And then at the time, people were not desensitized yet. So uh, people hearing something might happen because of outsiders that we know for a fact came and invaded, it would cause a lot of social unrest, a lot of uprisings, a lot of issues. Today, it would not it would not do that anymore because people just got used to having a fucked life. But yeah, uh, the the, uh, 19, the 1929 uprising, it, it is tied to the 30s, but it's not directly tied to the extent that class and uh, colonialism is because the the main relation between both is that there were some people who were in the leadership of both and a lot of people who participated in the first one also participated in the other one and that the uh, unrest in the first one followed into the unrest of the latter one. So it was just basically more and more and more unrest and the 1929 part was part of that unrest. But it was not the direct uh, cause of it. It was just all unrest like anything else. Okay, thank you. Uh, also, I'm really, really happy that you you broke down what re what was really going on in the the Hebron massacre because Zionists make a lot of fucking hay uh, uh, out of that <laughs> that that event is talked about so so much as like aha see they they killed the Palestinian Jews too this is why blah 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 and just like knowing the truth of it is so fucking important. So I'm really happy that you, you broke that down for us. Um, they typically uh, refer to it as the equivalent of the Holocaust, ugh. Um, which or I they call feel it makes you a Holocaust denier. Oh my fucking God. Yep. Uh, I mean, 
if the Holocaust was done by five to ten people in one town, in one town with most of the population defending the victims, which did not happen in, in the Holocaust, yeah. then yeah, sure, you could, you could try to equivocate it, but it was really not like that whatsoever. Besides, yeah. most of the population in Hebron, except like two, two families or two men, do descend from Jews themselves. They were converts from Judaism to Islam and Christianity. Most of the people in Hebron are like that, and the towns surrounding Hebron as well. Most of the people in Yatta were originally Jews that converted to Islam, and in fact, Yatta up until the like what uh, up until the 1940s was uh, like a third Jewish, and then most of the Jews just went on their own to Jerusalem because they had better opportunities there. They were not harmed whatsoever. Nobody attacked them. And there are still relations between the people, the Jews from that town in Jerusalem and the people in that town till this day. And same goes to other towns in the south, but it was specifically Hebron and Yotta, the two that had most Jews in the south. And there are still relations between the Jews of the south and people from that town to this day. So, and yeah, people from there even descend from them. So yeah. it's, just, it's just a very ridiculous claim. Yeah. And th this whole um, cultural anger um, and religious anger portrayal by um, European Jews and even um, Western observers who have read a book on the Middle East um, that we hear a lot strikes very strongly of this ancient sectarian uh, divides uh, trend that we hear about a lot that people in the Middle East fight because they have thousands of years of history of being angry at each other and they don't have any other reason to be mad. Um, and even Ben Gurion, who is the one of the architects of all of this, this Zionist project described Arab causes uh, um, over the Arab revolt here in Palestine as a fear of growing Jewish economic power and opposition to mass Jewish immigration and fear of English identification with Zionism. Which well, just sounds like he's doing a uh, Harry Potter banking goblins thing. <laughs> just well, not just not a good portrayal. As as someone who's you know who descends from fucking both Jews and Samaritans. No, no, not really. Uh, like part of my family descends from Jews and it's documented and the other part descends from Samaritans and it's also documented. So no, 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 there were, the sectarian <laughs> divides were not that big. Plus most of the founders of Palestinian nationalism and most of the like leaders were Christians. George Habash was the leader of the PFLP, the founder of the PFLP, he was Christian. And one of his closest comrades, uh, two of his closest comrades, uh, were Muslim. So no, that, that, that's not true either. Uh, the first and most successful uprising by uh, the locals against the Ottomans, as I mentioned before, during the 1700s, uh, most of the army was Shia. Most of the people fighting for the uh, new leader was originally a he, he was Sunni himself, but most of his army was Shia, and they were volunteers. They wanted him to be leader. And that has nothing to do with their sect whatsoever. And when he did become leader, what he did, the first thing he did was allow 
uh, Turkish Jews into uh, Tiberius because they wanted to go there to move there or worship. Uh, he gave them, he built them synagogues and he built them houses and he housed them there. And he also allowed uh, Christians from the Lebanese mountains and other areas in what is now today Lebanon uh, to move to northern Palestine into Akka, which was the capital of his uh, kingdom or Sheikhdom at the time. Uh, and he built them churches, he built them houses, and there, was, there were no sectarian divides whatsoever. Now, there were some cases here and there, uh, but most of these were like literally outside of the control of the peasantry themselves. The peasantry had little to no sectarian divides, while the urban elite also did not have major sectarian divides, but they were seen every once in a while in areas such as Nablus, where Nablus was mostly Samaritan. And the Samaritans decided to revolt against the feudals. The feudals were Muslim, but the uh, the locals were Samaritan by faith. So, uh, the Samaritans revol revolted against the, the feudals. The feudals were not of Levantine origin themselves, but they got assimilated later on. So uh, the feudals, not assimilated yet, basically forced all of them to convert to Islam. After the feudals got assimilated, sectarianism was not really a part of their legacy anymore. But unfortunately, at the time, Nablus was already made majority Muslim and majority Christian thanks to the feudals. It was mostly just economy, class, and social tensions none of them were really that sectarian except in very specific cases yeah the, the sectarianism is always used by the west as a, a stick to beat on the head of the east and the global south as a excuse to say that you don't have any real reason to be protesting you are just um culturally like this and thus are not valid you know what's really fucking funny though is that sectarianism, especially in like this region of the world, was founded by the colonists themselves. Sectarianism in Lebanon was founded by the French to give certain regions and areas for different sects and religions, which caused sectarian divides by the French themselves that did not exist prior, except in very specific cases, as I mentioned before, because there was a civil war between feudals, and those feudals belonged to different sects. So people just followed uh, the feudal they related to more. But that, again, relates to class, not sects. So uh, when it only became specifically sects was when France allowed the feudals, again, to gain control over politics there. And then because the feudals wanted areas for their own people here, here and there, they caused sectarian tensions. And that, again, is thanks to France. Then goes to Syria. Syria, in fact, did not have sectarian tensions until recently. And that is thanks to fucking civil war. Why did the civil war start? I, th I think we all know by now. <laughs> Iraq, we're not really talking about Iraq here, but Iraq is an example of a country that's nearby. Uh, Iraq had sectarianism, again, thanks to the fucking US. Uh, so, in the end of the day, as you can fucking see on your own at this point, most of the sectarianism in the East was started because of colonists and feudals. Yeah, and that's true going like, if you look at the history of the West, that that is where sectarian violence happens, like 30 years war, the Great Northern War, like all the wars of the Reformation and the Counter Reformation. And like, again, coming from a background studying like Jewish history and things like that, the argument is so often made that like, oh, the Jews have always been the victims anywhere they lived. But like if you compare the nature of conflicts between 
Jews and, you know, Christians in power in Europe versus Jews and uh, Muslim, you know, Muslim countries in the Middle East and North Africa. It's exactly like you said, it's not sectarian except in like very specific instances, whereas in in the West, the sectarian nature of the conflict is like baked into everything that happens. And so it's just really fucking hypocritical uh, to the extreme when, like you said, Prez, this, this happens all the time. Like, oh, they've been fighting forever. Who knows why or when or whatever? Like, uh, and like, no, nah, man, that's Western history. That's not <laughs> that's not the history of anyone like, else. We, we literally have an entire treaty um, in European history that defines the creation of official sectarianism in Europe. And that's called the creation of the nation state. Yep. And now we have Europe Europe divided into 60,000 fucking nation states. And then they just went to the Middle East and said, okay, we should have just as many nation states. And they just started drawing lines. Um, and that is the creation of sectarianism in India and Pakistan and Afghanistan and Syria and I guess the general Levant and Iraq and everywhere fucking else. Um, but to bring it back to the, the general strike, it, as we've been saying it, it's not just, it's not about quote unquote sectarian divides. Um, I was looking up where, what, what, what exactly was targeted in the general strike. Um, and one of the major targets by um, workers in this uprising was the Mosul Haifa oil pipe pipeline that was run by the British. And that is a very direct piece of action targeting a economic means of production being run by the British in the area that is depriving a lot of people of subsidence that we are not hearing about because we're focusing on how this is the precursor to the Holocaust because they're Muslim and they're mad at the Jews for settling. I mean, no one was mad at the Jews in Tiberias for settling. So there's that and nobody was mad at the Jews of Hebron until like five people came out of nowhere because of a few rumors. And up until today, nobody's really mad at Palestinian Jews. In fact, a lot of them were, like, were they a lot or were they few? I have no idea what the exact number was, but there were very prominent Palestinian Jews in the PLO and they had a lot, like, a very loud voice as well. So nobody's really mad at any specific sect. People are just mad at the colonists. Also, I wish the fucking lines were even accurate, like Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the fucking I want to go back if if I could go back in time, I think one of like high up on my list would just be just murdering Sykes and Picot. Like you fuckers. Uh, I mean Lenin Lenin should have tried. I mean he did expose them so. <laughs> True. Big ups. Big ups to our boy. Um okay, before we go on, we're almost at 2 hours. Let's take a little break before we dive in to Al-Nakba. At this rate, we might cut it and have to cut it in half and make it two episodes. There's there's so much to talk about. And that's fine by me. That would be really cool as well. Yeah, I would be fine just like doing a part one, part two, because there's okay. there's a lot of good info 
I'm really excited. I think our listeners are going to love this. I'm having a great time. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning. Oh, so I'm having a great time as well. Excellent. This is fantastic, Matez. Uh, this is really, really great. Thank you so much. So your real wealth of information. Um, I'm learning a lot, and this is going to be a really fantastic episode. All right, that is the end of part one of our episode on Palestinian resistance. Thank you again from all of us here at the Minyan to Matez for coming on and teaching us so much. Uh, thank you also to our lovely patrons and a special, special thank you to those who have signed up for the brand new Big Macher tier. Uh, for those who have not been following the Twitter, the Big Macher tier is a way for us to uh, reward our patrons with very special Minyan merchandise. So we have our very first piece of merch available. It is a four inch embroidered Minyan logo patch. Um, and by signing up for the Big Macher tier, you get one uh, sent to you. And then for any additional merch we make, you will also get one sent to you uh, in the size that you specify when you sign up. Um, this is just a way for us to thank you for making all of this possible. Uh, the show, the merch, all of it. Um, we love you and thank you dearly. And so as a special thanks, I want to read off the list of our current big muckers. Thank you to Chairman Mo, Christian, Eli, Yovakoku, Lazar Kaganovich, Philip, Queer Antifa, Marxist Lesbianist, Greer, Bands of Turtle Island, Marion, Ibrahim, J Bones Levy, Pope Peanut the Ninth, and Violet. You big machers are our eternal chaverim, uh, and we love you dearly. And we appreciate not only your support, but also the support of everyone on Patreon and on Twitter and in the Lenin's Ghost Discord. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can hit us at any of those places. We are on Twitter at the underscore minion. Um, like I said, we are in the Lenin's Ghost Discord. You can always DM us on Twitter for the link if you would like to join and talk to us there. You can get at us by email at minyanpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Patreon at the underscore minyan. And so until next time, we hope to hear from you there. Uh, and as our outro music, here is the song Matez mentioned earlier in the episode. Solidarity forever. دبرها يا مستر دل ملكنا على ايدك بتحل دبرها يا مستر دل ملكنا على ايدك بتحل ودبرها يا مستر دل ملكنا على ايدك بتحل دبرها يا مستر دل ملكنا على ايدك بتحل يا حضره القائد دل لظن الامه بتمل يا حضره القائد دل لظن لكن انت سايرها ملكنا على ايدك بتحل ودبرها يا مستر جل ملكنا على ايدك بتحل دبرها يا مستر جل ملكنا على ايدك بتحل
نتعاوز يا جنرال بالقوة تغير الحال ونتعاوز يا جنرال بالقوة تغير الحال لازم تعتقد أكيد طلبك صعب من المحال دبرها يا مستر بل ألكن على إيدك بتحل دبرها يا مستر بل ألكن على إيدك بتحل Yeah. 